Well, welcome to The Crossing. So good to see you today. Glad that you are here. And uh, let's do this as we start off. Let's give a big welcome to our Southeast campus, our microsites, and those who are watching online. Let's welcome them right now. Welcome, welcome. We uh, are launching a brand new microsite in Minden, Nevada. So welcome. Glad that you are joining us and a part of this uh, journey with us. Well, we are in a series called Encounter. And the idea is that, that we want to encounter Jesus at a deep level. We're walking through the life of Christ because we just believe that the closer that you get to Jesus, the more your life will be transformed, the more you'll become like him, the more your life will begin to change. And so today as we start out, let me kind of start out with this question right here. What does success look like to you? How do you measure success? Years ago, I decided that I wanted to buy a four-wheel drive truck. So I'd saved up some money. I found a used truck that was at a decent price. And after work, I called the guy who was selling it, and I made an appointment to go see him that night. Well, I got there. I test drove the truck. It was exactly what I was looking for. We negotiated a price, and then we decided we would meet the next day at my bank. I would transfer money to him. He would bring the title. So it was perfect. I was really excited about it. Well, the next day, I get to the bank early, and then he pulls up in the ugliest truck I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> he gets out, and I said, is this the truck I just test drove last night? He goes, yep, this is it. Well, I test drove it in the dark. I had no idea how ugly the color was. Well, as we walk into the bank, my head is just spinning. I don't know what to do because I've made a deal with this guy. I've kind of given him my word, but I'm like, I can't drive this truck. As cool as it would be to have a four-wheel drive truck, I would lose all that coolness by driving a truck that was this color. I, I just didn't know what to do. So we get in line, and we get to the front of the line, and finally I said, I cannot buy your truck. I said, I am so sorry. I just can't buy it. I gave him $100 for his trouble. And I learned a big lesson, and this may be the lesson that you need to take home today. Don't ever buy a car in the dark. <laughs> See, I had made a decision to buy a car that I was going to drive for the next several years, and I didn't even know what it looked like. See, here's the temptation for us. The temptation for us is we make decisions about today that will affect tomorrow. We make decisions today with this limited perspective on how it's going to affect tomorrow and the rest of our life. And we do that every single day. So what does success look like for you? What do you want to be at the end? There's a great book by Stephen Covey called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. How many have read that book before? A bunch of you. It's sold like 25 million copies, and he has um, a chapter where he talks about this. Let me just read this section to you. Here, here's what he writes. He said, in your mind's eye, see yourself going to the funeral of a loved one. Picture yourself driving to the funeral parlor or chapel, parking the car and getting out. And as you walk inside the building, you notice the flowers, the soft organ music. You see the faces of family and friends that, that you pass along the way. You feel the shared sorrow, the joy of having known that radiates from the hearts of the people there. As you walk down to the front of the room and look inside the casket, you suddenly come face to face with yourself. This is your funeral 
three years from today. As these people have come to honor you to express feelings of love and appreciation for your life. As you take a seat and you wait for the service to begin, you look at the program in your hand. There's to be four speakers. The first is from your family, immediate and also extended children, brothers, sisters, nephews, nieces, aunts, uncles, cousins, and grandparents who have come from all over the country to celebrate your life. The second speaker is one of your friends, someone who can give a sense of who you were as a person. The third speaker is from your work or profession, and the fourth is from your church or some community organization where you've been involved in in service. Now think deeply. What would you like each of these speakers to say about you and your life? What kind of husband, wife, father, or mother would you like their words to reflect? What kind of son or daughter or cousin? What kind of friend? What kind of working associate? What character would you like them to have seen in you? What contributions, what achievements would you want them to remember? Look carefully at the people around you. What difference would you like for them to have, made, to have made in their lives? See, when you begin to look at tomorrow, it will help you determine what is most important today. When you begin to look at the end, when you want all of these people, what they're going to say about you, it affects the way you live your life and the decisions that you make today. Here's what Stephen Covey goes on to say. He says, if you carefully consider what you wanted to be said of you in, your, in the funeral experience, you will find your definition of success. See, this right here will expose what is most valuable to you. And here's what I found, that my definition of success has little to do with my accomplishments. It has everything to do with my character and how I treated people. That's what success looks like to me. Well, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Mark chapter 10. And in this series, as we've been walking through the gospel of Mark, we took a turn in the series a couple weeks ago. While the first half of the series, while the first half of the, of the gospel of Mark is about Jesus' identity, the second half is about his purpose of dying on the cross. With every conversation, it is like a line in the sand of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And today, Jesus encounters this young, wealthy guy. I think he's probably single. His success and his wealth have not only defined him, but they have owned him. And this encounter has the potential to change his life and redefine his definition of success. Well, let's pick up the story. Mark chapter 10, we're going to begin in verse 17. It says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, this isn't a bad question to ask Jesus. It's not a bad question at all, but notice the emphasis. What must I do? See, this rich guy is all about a checklist. He's driven. It's all about another thing that he can just mark off in his line of successes. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This word inherit could also be translated to acquire or earn. See, for this guy, eternal life is something that he can achieve, that he can earn. It's something that he does for himself. I don't know if you're familiar with the comedian Bill Maher. He has a political show 
on HBO. He was quoted talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. Here's what he said. He goes, I don't get it. The thought of someone else cleansing me of my sins is ridiculous. I don't need anyone to cleanse me. I can cleanse myself. See, that's the mentality of someone who thinks that they can earn their access to God or earn their access for their future. What goes on here in verse 18? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? Jesus answered him, no one is good except God alone. Jesus asks the unasked, Jesus answers the unasked question. Why do you call me good? And when he calls him good teacher, this word that he uses for good doesn't just mean that he thinks that he's a good teacher. He thinks that he's a good man. And Jesus says, no one is good except God alone. That Jesus is, is beginning to expose something about himself to this young, wealthy guy. That Jesus is God. And Jesus begins to probe in his heart. He, he begins to get to the core. See, eternal life is not another achievement. Eternal life is not another trophy or check mark, mark towards a successful life. But this guy wants a formula, and he's like us. What do I need to do so I can get what I want from God? Jesus goes on, and he says, you know the commandments. You should not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all of these things I have kept since I was a boy. That this is exactly what he wants to hear. This is exactly what he wants. It's a checklist that he can check off. And he says, I've done all the right things. I've done all of these. I've kept all these commands since I was a kid. And it's interesting that the Ten Commandments that Jesus uses, these Ten Commandments that, that he brings out are the ones that have to do with the outward appearance. The ones that he could say, well, I've never done that before. And Jesus leaves out the Ten Commandments that exposes the heart. But Jesus will expose his heart in a whole different way in just a minute. goes on here in verse 21. It says, Jesus looked at him and he loved him. That there is something about this guy that just draws Jesus out to him. There's something about this guy that Jesus' heart goes out to him. Jesus is not mad or angry at him. Listen, some of you need to hear this. Jesus is not mad at you. God is not angry at you. Some of you have this, this idea that God must be angry at you because you can't quite get your life together. God is not mad or angry at you. But Jesus is going to expose something about his heart. He says one thing you lack. He said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Jesus says, one thing you lack, and then he gives him three things. He says, go sell everything that you have. And this guy probably didn't need to write this down. He's like, okay, I'm not interested yet. I want you to give it all to the poor, and then come follow me. You want me to do what, Jesus? you you got to be kidding here. See, here's what Jesus knows about him, and here's what Jesus knows about you and me, is that whenever, whenever there is something that is in direct competition for your heart, you have to choose. His wealth, his success, they owned him, and he looks at the Son of God, 
And he says, no thank you. Verse 22, at this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. This word sad, it's, it's deep grief. He went away sad because he had deep wealth. This rich young ruler had come to define himself by success. Jesus, I have too much stuff to follow you. Because his stuff owned him. It says, Jesus looked around, verse 23, and said to the disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his word, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus says it twice. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And there's a lot of opinions on what Jesus meant by it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Some people say that there was a gate outside of Jerusalem that was called the eye of the needle and a camel had a hard time getting through it. I don't think that's what it is. I think it is what Jesus, I think he's being, you know, he's using exaggeration. You know, it is, it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle. He's just saying it's hard. It is hard. And everyone listening to Jesus would have been shocked. Because they believed that wealth equaled God's favor. See, there was this thought for everybody is that God must like wealthy people more. And that's the reason they were rich. But here's what Jesus does. Jesus addresses the number one competitor of his heart. And Jesus addresses the number one competitor of your heart. It's your money. Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 6, he says, you cannot serve both God and money. Literally, this is you cannot serve both God and your stuff. The Jesus clearly taught that the chief competitor for your heart, it's not Satan. It's not even your sin. That the chief competitor for your heart is your stuff and your desire for stuff. And some of you are thinking right now that the application of this message is to go and sell your stuff. And you feel this tension right now because you want to leave. You're like, I would like to get out of here, but then everybody's going to see me walk out of here. That's not the application. I don't think that's the application because this isn't the only rich guy that Jesus encountered. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus encounters another rich guy by the name of Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus was a tax collector who had ripped off people. But Jesus doesn't make the same requirement of him. Jesus tells him something different. So I think there's something deeper about what Jesus is saying to this guy. Well, the story goes on. Verse 26. It says, The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Because they had been conditioned to believe that the rich were the most likely to be saved because God must like them the most. And Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, we have left everything to follow you, and now they're getting to the heart of the matter. Because following Jesus isn't about giving up your money. Following Jesus is about giving up everything. Following Jesus isn't about giving up your stuff. Following Jesus is about surrendering everything to him. Jesus says, truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home 
or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in the present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields. And look at this. Along with persecutions because this is what happens when you choose to follow Jesus, that there is a price to pay. It is the best life, but there is a price to pay. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. They thought that the rich were all in line first to get to God. And Jesus says, many who are last will be first, and the first will be last. Jesus addresses everything here. Jesus says, anyone who, who leaves their homes and Mothers and brothers and their fields. He addresses everything. He addresses your stuff. And he addresses your relationships, your business, your career. This is not a money issue. This is an everything issue. This is an identity issue. That this guy's identity, it came from his wealth. And see, I think the question for us is, am I willing to surrender my identity for something better? Because this relationship with God requires surrender. See, here's what we're tempted to say. Lord, I'll give you everything except. Lord, I'll go anywhere but. Lord, I will serve you in any way excluding. Lord, I'll help anyone but not him. Lord, I'll give back to you when you give me more. Lord, I'll live anywhere as long as. Listen, friends, surrender has no conditions. It's all. It is all or nothing. NBC News had a story a few years ago about a group of new vegetarians that they normally eat vegetarian, but they make some exceptions. One girl said, I'm vegetarian, but I like sausage. So in other words, they don't eat meat unless they want to. Well, as you can imagine, the real vegetarians weren't too happy with this new group of vegetarians, and they were pressuring them, you need to come up with a new name. You cannot call yourself a vegetarian if you eat meat. And so they came up with a new name. I'm not making this up. They came up with a new name to call themselves. They call themselves flexitarians. I'm a vegetarian, but I'm flexible. And I realized at that moment that I'm a flexitarian. I refuse to eat meat unless it's served. Then I'm all in. Now, I think flexitarian is a good way to describe how many people approach their faith. I really like Jesus, but I don't like what he says about money or sex or forgiveness or whatever that issue is for you, whatever it is for you. And if we're not careful, we can replace the message of Jesus the King to deny yourself and replace it with Burger King, have it your own way, whatever you want. See, here's what I think a lot of us are, that there are nine out of ten things that we've surrendered to God. There's 19 out of 20 things that we say, this is all yours, God, but there is that one thing in our life that we hold on to. It is that one thing. And if we're going to come to Jesus, it means total surrender. It means denying yourself. Here's what Jesus said a couple chapters before, Mark chapter 8. 
He said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple, you have a choice. You have a choice. And just like the rich guy who decided to walk away, you have a choice. But if you choose to be a disciple, if you choose to be his disciple, it means total surrender to him. And Jesus makes it clear, nothing can compete with him. So what does success look like to you? What does the end look like to you? What do you want your life to be about at the end? I have a couple applications, a couple choices here for us. Here's the first. Whatever we fail to surrender, we are responsible for the outcome. Whatever we fail to surrender, we are responsible for the outcome. That anything that you hold on to, that one out of 20 things that you hold on to, everything else, God, I've surrendered to you, but not this one thing. That outcome, it is completely up to you. And apparently, God will not get in the way of you having your way. God will not get in the way of me having my way. He won't rob us of the responsibility and the outcome associated with our decisions. That God so honors your freedom that he will not interfere, even if it means that you are undermining your future. This rich young guy chose the temporary instead of the eternal. And here's a guy who was asking Jesus about eternal life. And the price was too high. He chose the temporary instead of the eternal. See, it's so much easier to choose the temporary that you may be tempted to take the easy route and completely miss what God has for you. Resisting and arguing with God is way easier than saying, have your way. Surrender is the harder road. But whatever you fail to surrender, you've chosen to take responsibility for that outcome in your life. But there's a better option. And here's the takeaway for today, is that when you surrender, God takes responsibility for the outcome of your life. That when you surrender, that your heavenly Father takes full responsibility for the outcome of your life. This means that the safest place to be is at the center of God's will. It begins with saying, God, your will, not my will. And you might be thinking, this right here is risky. But whatever you replace God with in your life is far more risky. See, when we surrender... God takes full responsibility for the outcomes of your life. You know what Jesus didn't say to this rich young ruler? He didn't renegotiate. He didn't say, wait a second, wait a second. How about you sell half of your stuff? Or how about we kind of work our way up till it feels comfortable for you? Jesus let him walk. And you know what he says to you and to me? He says the cost is high. To be a follower of Jesus, the cost is high, but it is worth it. Because when we surrender, God takes full responsibility for your life. Surrender is not optional. It is mandatory. So here's the question. Have you surrendered? Have you surrendered? 
Have you come to a time in your life where you say, God, have your way. Have your way in that relationship, in my future, my major, my GPA, my best friend, my attitude, my decision for, to forgive, everything. I surrender all to you. All of it. See, we all put our trust in something that will eventually cost us everything. And so the question is, am I putting my trust in the right thing? Because that's what surrender is. It's everything. Some of you have surrendered your life to Christ and you are all in. There's some of you, you're holding on to something. God's trying to get a hold of you. There's some of you here that you're ready to become a follower of Christ. But you don't know what it's going to entail. Here's what I'm going to tell you. It is worth it. It is worth it. The, the greatest picture of surrender is baptism. This is why Jesus tells all of us who are followers of Christ to be baptized. That if you have made Jesus the Lord of your life, but you've never been baptized, this is your next step. And when you're baptized, there is no halfway. You're not partially baptized. When you're baptized, you go all the way under the water, and we all come out of the water, and we don't look great. Because when we come out of the water, it's a new life. We're baptized saying, I'm dying to myself. I'm dying to myself, and I'm taking new life in Jesus. When you surrender, there is no telling about how God might use you. That Jesus ended this encounter by saying, the first will be last, and the last will be first. See, part of the posture of a, of a follower of Christ is you put others above yourselves, and Jesus says that's what greatness looks like. Out in the lobby, we have what we're calling the gallery of greatness. It's people who have chosen to serve others with their life. We have all kinds of people who are represented there. I have a few that, I've, that I have. This right here, this is Carolyn Schumacher. She is a, a teacher at Rose Warren Elementary. And one of the things that Karen does is she helps children who are having trouble reading. And she just comes alongside them. Carolyn's been at the crossing for a number of years. She's a good friend of mine. This right here is Marv Casterline. Marv is, is in his 70s. And he is one of our volunteers in children's ministry. He's in his 70s volunteering in children's ministry every single week. What's your excuse? Here's a hero. Because he's showing children what it means to love Jesus. That Jesus has the best life for us. This right here is my friend Don Miller. Don is one of the first friends that I had when I moved to Las Vegas 20-some years ago. And Don works for Hopelink of Southern Nevada. It's a nonprofit here in town where Don works with seniors who don't have enough money to take care of their needs. He's working with seniors who have $15, $20 a month to eat on. And he, he emailed me the other day. He said, Shane, he said, I feel like God created me for this, that this is the greatest calling of my life to pour my life into other people. See, these are the unsung heroes of our church, the unsung heroes of our community. 
that people who are, who are serving others without recognition. Sherry Alexander is another one. She attends the crossing as well. She's a wife, a mom, a mentor, a foster mom. And she works at the heart of downtown, working with children, children who are at risk, children who are in desperate need of help. She says this is just what surrender looks like in her life, that she's dedicated her life to serving others, mostly in obscurity, but trying to make an eternal impact.